at John chapter 4, verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, he left Judea, departed again into Galilee. And John tells us this, and he must, needs, go through Samaria. Now the person Jesus met in this story is commonly called the woman at the well. And I want to talk about her in this story tonight as the undesirable disciple. Please be seated. We're blessed uh, to live in a thriving metropolitan area that is known as a commuter city. Some people use public transportation, but compared to cities in the Northeast or New York City, Chicago, some in L.A., but Atlanta is a commuter city. So we drive a lot in Atlanta. And I know you know better than me that you never know what you're going to encounter when you leave point A and you go to point B. When I make the 10-minute trip from Lithia Springs to Douglasville, I get out my phone, I open a map program, and I make sure that I-20 is not shut down. If it is, there's an alternate route. Now, don't get confused because in my message on Sunday, there's only one way to get to heaven. But there's a lot of ways sometimes to get to other places unless it's Key West. Okay, you got that from Sunday. So, when there's traffic, you're trying to figure that out. So, in my, my map programs, if I'm going on a longer trip, and I'm not talking about Anchorage, I'm talking about, you know, across town or anywhere, I usually look at more than one map program because sometimes one map program may lag, it may not get it right. Typically, I look at Google Maps, Apple Maps, and Waze. I'm not going to do a vote tonight on your favorite map program, but there's something I learned about Waze, and I'm not preaching against Waze tonight, in case it's your favorite map program, that sometimes, at least for me, it will take you on a back road, a logging road, a pig trail, <laughs> through the back streets of a sketchy neighborhood. One time, two of my daughters-in-law, they were in one car, I was in another car. They stayed on the interstate, and I don't, I'm going to blame it on Waze. I don't know if it was or not. It took me all kind of back roads, and I, I think I lost a minute on them. And, but it didn't save me a lot of time. I know sometimes it might help you navigate around traffic, but sometimes it's just better to take the interstate to get around all of that, you know, sometimes not. In John chapter 4, it kind of alludes to a similar sentiment that was common among the Jews. When John 4, 3 and 4 speaks of Jesus, left Judea, departed again to Galilee, he must needs go through Samaria. So, so why is that even noteworthy at all? Which, with so much limited space in the Bible, right? This is a very limited, why would you do that? John, the writer of this book, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, in case you think I don't know that, he told us that if everything was written down that Jesus did, that the world itself could not contain the books. So why would you say he must needs go through Samaria 
unless it was important. So it must have been important. Now, I found this fascinating in my study of this passage, something that I had not seen before or thought about, that in the ministry of Jesus, he used the word must numerous times relative to his mission. At the beginning of his ministry, in fact, before then, when he was 12, he said, I must be about my father's business. I, I must be about my father's business. In Luke 4, at the beginning of his ministry, he said, I must preach the gospel, the kingdom of God, in other cities also. I've been thinking about this verse lately. For therefore am I sent. He couldn't just be locked down just to sit around in one spot just to have coffee because there were lost people he had to go reach. So he had to leave city A to go to city B because people were lost. In Luke 19, Jesus told Zacchaeus, or Zacchaeus, if you like to pronounce it that way, I must abide in your house. Zacchaeus was a lost man, perhaps a corrupt tax collector. And relative to his mission, Jesus said, Zacchaeus, I must come to your house. You're on my agenda. I have a need to come to your house. In John 9 and 4, Jesus said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. You see this sense of urgency in the ministry of Jesus. I must do what I'm going to do while I can. That's part of the way he spoke. In John 10, Jesus said, There are sheep that are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. He's speaking of a, of a Gentile flock, if you could say it that way. I must bring them into the fold. And in many places in the Bible, Jesus referred to his crucifixion, and he used this word must. John 3, 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And in Mark 8.31, he began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and priests, scribes, killed, and three days rise again. I must be about my Father's business. I must preach the gospel in other cities also. I must go to your house. I must suffer and die. I must needs. He, John said, must needs go through Samaria. So it's significant that John, in John 4 and 4, would tell us this. Now, most of you know this, or many of you know this, I shouldn't say most, but when a religiously devout Jew wanted to go from point A, Judea, or Jerusalem, that city in Judea, to point B, a city in Galilee, when they wanted to go there, the shortest route was through Samaria. If they used ways, it would take them through Samaria. It was more convenient, but it was not really the way that a really godly Jew would go. They would go a more circuitous route to go from Judea to Samaria. That's just the way they traveled. They would avoid traveling through Samaria, if at all possible, circumnavigate it, but not Jesus. He said, I must needs go through Samaria, an unusual way 
for a Jew to travel from Judea to Galilee. It's faster, not preferred. This is how they would typically go according to what I found. They would go east of Jericho. They would travel north, skirting the hills of Judea and Samaria, outside of Samaria. They go just west of the Jordan River. When they saw Mount Gilboa, when it was in sight, they would come to another city, Scythopolis. And then they would turn west and go under the Jezreel Valley. They would come into the well-watered plains and come finally into Galilee. That was the way they would typically go. So they wouldn't have to go through that bad neighborhood called the province of Samaria. It was easier, but it was inhabited by people that they clearly did not like. Undesirable people. The Samaritans. And for centuries, there was rivalry and strife between the Jews and the Samaritans. It's the background of John chapter 4. Brother Jury gave you two opposites of Apollos, who's a seeker of God, and those pagans. John 3 gives us the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, a religious man. Now in John 4, the Lord gives us the story of this woman at the well, an undesirable prospective disciple. Jesus told his disciples that they would be witnesses of him in Samaria, Acts 1 and 8, Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. And in this story, he sets up the, the path for the gospel. I really believe that perhaps the revival that broke out in Samaria in Acts chapter 8 was seeded by Jesus who said, you know, John said of him, and he must needs go through Samaria. So he does. And he stops at the city of Sychar at lunchtime, John Chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. They cometh thee to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well is there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus. I'd like to try to make a sermon out of thus, but he sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. If you know biblical time, this is noon. It's about noon, middle of the day. And there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. So let's talk about this Samaritan woman at the well. The Samaritans were viewed as mixed breed people, probably having some Jewish blood, culturally different, religiously different. We'll learn in the story that she's morally different. This woman at the well was considered to be a part of an apostate group of people, the, the Samaritans. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament in the northern kingdom of Israel that was based in the city of Samaria. Samaria was set up as a capital. Remember the king tried to make it more convenient to worship there. It's too much for you to go all the way to Jerusalem. And when the Assyrians conquered the northern ten tribes, headquartered in Samaria in 722 B.C., they repopulated that region with people throughout their empire. And remnants of the defeated Israelite kingdom were now mixed in marriages with Persians and other conquered people 
who lived in that area. The paganism that was known to Jeroboam was now mixed with other countries and other practices among the Samaritan people and that land that was infamous to the Jews. Now in time, the monotheism of Judaism, the belief in one God, prevailed to some extent, but there were some modifications. The Samaritans rejected the writings of the prophets. They did not want to read also about the histories of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles because they talked about David in the Davidic line of the king. They did not want anything to do with that. They wanted to stay stuck in ancient Israeli history. They didn't believe in the wisdom literature of Proverbs and Psalms once again because of the emphasis on Jerusalem, on David and the Davidic kingdom. Their worship, their place of worship, was a temple that they built on Mount Gerizim. They had a mountain of their own, not Mount Zion, but Mount Gerizim, and a towering above ancient Shechem, the city of Shechem. So Jerusalem was rejected. They would not make a pilgrimage there, and that was intentional by the kings that ruled in Samaria, that northern tribe. They didn't want anybody to convert back to true Judaism. Following the Babylonian exile, when Zerubbabel led the rebuilding of the temple, you may remember that Samaritan help was adamantly refused. They did not want those Samaritans helping them rebuild the temple. They didn't have any part of that. Alexander the Great came, and Samaria was an important city to all of them. But there's a lot of anti-Samaritan sentiment among the Jews, and it prevailed to the times of Jesus. 128 B.C., The Jews attacked Samaria, destroyed Shechem, burned the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim, which is evidently rebuilt, or at least worship at the mountain was there. So with a history like that, you might understand why somebody wanting to go from Jerusalem or the province of Judea into Galilee would make sure that they used a map program that would allow them to take a much longer route but avoiding that undesirable neighborhood. They did not want to go there. That's the background of the Jews and the Samaritans and that province of Samaritan. But then you have the problem of this woman. She's also undesirable. When you read about her, you can read through the story and back. She is not a good person. Maybe you can give her the benefit of the doubt that she was looking for love in all the wrong places. If you would have been another woman who also lived in the city of Sychar, somebody who lived in this woman's neighborhood, someone who worked with her on the job or exercised with her at the local gym, you would not have wanted your husband or your son to go near her. That's who she was. We know from John 4.18 that she had been married five times. Now I thought it was three strikes and you're out. She's been married five times. And she has a live-in boyfriend. She's living with a man who is not her husband. Her life is really messed up. She is in no way a desirable candidate for the gospel and discipleship. She's an undesirable disciple. And who knows 
If she did run to the altar and repent, receive the Holy Ghost, I know this story is prior to Pentecost. Who knows if she would stick? You know, she has no root in her. There's nothing about her that would make you think that she would ever last to be discipled to the Word of God. I imagine this woman being very guarded and her behavior in this dialogue with Jesus shows it. I see her in my own imagination, this is just my imagination, as once having been attractive, maybe in the past, but now weathered, maybe a little wrinkled, not quite the person she used to be. I don't really know that. We don't know from the Bible how her first marriage ended. Maybe she was married, tempted by another man, by her beauty maybe, by her own insecurities. But lured away from marriage one. And then there was the next, and the next, and the next, and the next. And now, maybe she reasoned, why in the world should you bother getting married? What's the difference? Just live with your latest lover and, you know, who knows who initiated those first five divorces. But after five Husbands, you start thinking that maybe she's not that easy to live with. I don't know. It's just, just a hint. For whatever reason. Or maybe so beautiful in the past on the outside, so vulnerable on the inside. She's always being drawn away to a new adventurous affair that leads to divorce and remarriage. And now this sixth scenario. But we know by this story that she is searching for something to satiate the thirst that is in her soul. Otherwise, we would not have this story in our Bibles. As bad as she is, the worst sinner kind of person. She's not worth saving to anyone maybe except Jesus. Now, Jacob's well is a constant in her life, connects her to her heritage. She talks about this well, it means something to her, something valuable and stable in her life. It's tied to her ancestors and, and Jacob's well that gave them a source of life and sustenance. All these many centuries later, it's still there. The Samaritans consider Jacob, that Jewish patriarch, one of their patriarchs, our father Jacob, she says. They they believed in Abraham. They believed in Jacob. They claimed him as one of their own. So Jesus sits on the well and he sets up the scene to redeem this undesirable disciple. Comes to the city, sits on the well. And the Bible said in John 4 and 6, this is not on the screen, but Jacob's well was there. Jesus was weary with his journey, sat thus on the well. We read that earlier. But it's interesting, just to throw this in, that Jesus is God in flesh. But he is fully man. And he is fully tired. This is not just a ploy. It's part of his plan. But he's worn out from a half a day's journey and it's very hot. And interestingly, he sends the people who will not understand this conversation off to a very slow fast food restaurant. John 4 and 8. His disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. You know, however he did it, guys, you know, 
I'm really worn out. I think I'm just going to sit here. Why don't all of you, not two of you or three or four of you, why don't all of you go away? Because you're going to sabotage what's getting ready to happen if you stick around. I think that's kind of the plan. That's, I'm reading that into the story a little bit. When they come back, you'll see that I'm not just making up out of thin air. Six hour, noon. In this culture, water collection was responsibility of women. I'm sorry, but that's the way it was. And in a world that isolated women socially, this task was not just a burdensome uh, thing they had to do, but it was also an opportunity for the ladies in the community to meet. It was like the local Starbucks or Bagelmeister or Eliana's or wherever. They liked going there to get water, get little gossip, find out the latest of that woman or whatever. Sychar, it's a little town. Everybody probably knows everything about everybody. There's no air conditioning. There's no garage doors. It's pretty much open for examination. You know? <laughs> so the wells, they become a, a place where women could either be avoided or could be met. When Abraham's servant returned north to Haran looking for a wife for Isaac, he found the local well. That's where he went. And that's where he met Rebekah. Right? When Moses fled to Midian, it was at a well that he met the daughters of Jethro, one of whom Zipporah became his wife. So a lot of stuff happens at a well. Pretty amazing, right? Historically, as I mentioned, this water, maybe I didn't say this yet, this water drawing took place early in the morning or late in the evening when it was cooler. You didn't go in the heat of the day to... Draw water unless you just had to. So morning or dusk, mid-afternoon was not unknown, but it wasn't likely. So this woman goes to Jacob's well at high noon because she would rather endure the heat of the sun than the heat of the gossip. Maybe. Nobody else is there to draw water. We learned the, the reason for her isolation, of course. She's doomed her reputation. She's broken her morals, public in her community. It makes Jesus' conversation more remarkable to her. He crosses a lot of social boundaries to talk to this woman at the well. In that culture, women rarely spoke to women. and Men rarely spoke to women in public. Even if they were married to them, it wouldn't be a public conversation. Single men would never speak or touch to a woman at any time. And so this conversation with Jesus and the woman at the well is intriguing. It's very interesting. And when you go through the details, which I won't really do tonight and all the rest of these verses, I'll, I'll walk through them just to make sure we have the context of the story. So when she comes up, he says to her, give me the drink. And she says, why are you talking to me? You're a Jew, she can tell, probably from his dress, his attire. He's dressed like a Jewish man, not a Samaritan man. And she says to him, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. You used the wrong map program. 
You were supposed to take the bypass. But here you are in Samaria. And then Jesus says to her, if you knew who I was, if you knew who was talking to you, and if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would ask of him, and I would give you living water, water that springs up, not water that you have to draw out. And she, not perceiving the spiritual nature of his comment, says, are you kidding? You don't even have a bucket. Who do you think you are? I'm the one with the bucket. You don't even have a bucket. And then she says, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank? He, he, I mean, all those centuries ago, he drank out of this same hole in the ground. His cattle drank out of this well. All these centuries later, we're still drinking out of this well. Isn't it good to leave something for your children and grandchildren that they can draw from? That's not really part of my message at all. But Jacob left something for future generations. Not a bad idea. You can mark that down. Somebody can call dibs on that for a sermon. Sorry, DJ, you're not here to call dibs. And then Jesus says to her, if you drink of this water, you're going to thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. For the water that I give him shall be in him a well. I love this truth about the Holy Ghost. Because that's what Jesus is talking about. What I, the water that I give you will be in you. It won't be in the ground. I'm glad you come to church. I believe in corporate worship. We believe in the, you know, the assembling of ourselves together. But you don't come here and just get the Holy Ghost when you walk in the door. Like, you don't leave it here. Go home and come back and it's waiting on you. That's right? right? It, it's in you. And it's in you when you're here. It's in when you, go, when you go. And the more of us worship God together, the more powerful it is. That's just true about worship. You know, biblically it's true, but, but it's in you wherever you are. And he wants her to know that this water that I give you isn't going to be at a sacred spot at this hole in the ground. It's going to be in you. And it's going to be an artesian well. It's going to spring up into everlasting life. She says back to him, sounds great, I'll take some of that. Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and I will not have to come here to draw. Because not only is it work, it's really uncomfortable. And it's no fun to come here at noon so I don't have to see anybody. So then Jesus does something that really sabotages this really friendly conversation. And this is where in the business, in the spiritual business of soul winning, Jesus was God in flesh. He was spirit indwelling a body. So he doesn't need the gifts of the spirit to operate in him. He is the spirit in flesh. But in application to us, this is where a conversation that is going nowhere spiritual turns spiritual in an instant because Jesus says something to her that he cannot know naturally. This is where the, the Holy Ghost can quicken you, can guide you. This is where 
a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom or discerning of spirits can operate in any spirit-filled believer. Amen? I believe he gives those gifts severally or individually as he will. Not everybody has every one of those nine gifts of the spirit. But you could say that Jesus has a word of knowledge. That's what he gives her. When in verse 16, he says, uh, go call your husband. So she doesn't know that he really knows at this point. So she says back to Jesus, I don't even have a husband. So that's the answer to that question. So let's just talk about this living water some more. And Jesus says back to her, you know, you actually told the truth. <laughs> he says, thou hast well said, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and, and the one you're living with now is not even your husband. And you telling me that you don't have a husband, you, you said truly. King James says truly, John 4, 18. You've actually told the truth. Like that may be an exception to the rule, I don't know. So, this is where the work of the Spirit can cut through a lot of resistance and garbage and superfluous talk. Or only God can do that. Well, that doesn't, she doesn't fall on her knees and repent. She does what a lot of people do. She diverts. Oh, we're now going to be religious. She says, oh, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Good call. And then she now is going to argue. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you say that it's Jerusalem where we're supposed to worship. Let's dodge God if at all possible here. Now let's turn this incisive conversation about my moral life to a religious argument. I said this recently in a service and I've said it along the way. That's maybe even last Wednesday night when I came up. That some people, they just make up an argument to ignore the real probing problem in their life. They've got this issue they're dealing with. They don't want to deal with it. So they make up an argument. Well, I don't understand this. Why did this relative die? Why is there sin in the world? Why do the innocent suffer? Why is there war in Ukraine? Why, why, why? There's a lot of things that we don't understand. This woman fully well knows that she's living an immoral life. She knows she's been married five times. She knows she's living in an adultery. But she still wants to talk about religion to try to ignore the real pressing issue of her sin. And when people do this, they're trying to create a smoke screen. When we do this, we're creating a smoke screen. To try to ignore what we full well know. Now, I want to give you just a little side note here that when she says this to Jesus and Jesus says back to her, John 4, 21, Jesus saith unto the woman, Believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know not what, for we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. It is at this point in the conversation that Jesus tells her, you are wrong. Now I know that if you tell anybody 
that they're wrong in 2022, you are a bigot. You're judgmental. Well, I would rather be labeled a bigot than to just walk away and say, see you later, you know, and let that person be lost. That's the option here. So Jesus says, salvation is of the Jews. I know you've got your religion. I know you've got Gerizim. I know you've got this well. You've got Jacob and all of that. But you know full well you're a sinful woman. The salvation's of the Jews. Everyone's not right. The truth is right. And Jesus tells her the truth. And just because these are such great verses, John 4, 22 through 24, you worship what you know, not what. We know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. This is an incredible revelation. When you read these scriptures in your Bible, it's some great revelation. And Jesus is telling these amazing things to one person who's a really bad person, who's an undesirable disciple. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Hallelujah. She's not, she's not giving in yet. Verse 25, she says, Well, I know the Messiah is coming. You know, the Messiah is on his way. And when he comes, he's going to tell us all things. She believes that there's a Messiah that's coming, but surely it's always in the future. The Lord's never going to come back, right? Never going to come the first time, never going to come the second time. But the Bible said that he, he came the first time and he's going to come the second time without sin and to salvation. And then Jesus says to her in verse 26, I that speak to you am he. I'm, the, I'm that Messiah. Praise God. What an amazing story of hope. John 4, 28. The woman left her water pot. That was, you know, symbolic to me of her purpose or Old life, that's why she went to the well. She abandons that water pot. She goes back into the city and she tells all the men, the Bible says she says to the men there. Now you can preach about this water pot being left. But verse 29, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did is not this to Christ. I think this is such incredible transparency. Because I believe that everybody in Sychar knew everything she ever did. I don't think her five divorces and five past husbands were a secret there. She grew up in this little dinky town, you know, like a, a city between two hills. It didn't travel like today. And, and everybody knows everything, but she tells them, this man knows, has told me everything. Is not this the Christ? And everybody in Samaria is moved by this. There is a citywide revival that breaks out in Samaria by the most unlikely, undeserving disciple that you could ever imagine in your life. Amen. She is not a good character witness. If she showed up in court to testify you, you your attorney can rip her to shreds. She can't tell the truth with her hand on the Bible standing in the church. You know, that's kind of what you would think. Not believable, not reliable, not to be trusted, has lived a life of betrayal. She has one point of credibility that I've been a really bad person and this man told me and I'm admitting it to everybody. So now they believe that. She's confessed. Come see a man. 
Amen. They knew her past. She knew her past. Until this day, she wanted to hide it. They all knew her past. They knew her present sin. Maybe they wanted to expose it. Amen. This adultery, multiple marriages were not approved in Samaria. They believed it was wrong, even in that false religion. And I'm quite sure that this undesirable disciple was the talk of the town, especially among the, the very concerned women of Sychar. But when she confesses this, the thing that she's always tried to hide, all the shame that she has carried, she's now ready to come clean and she is filled with joy that someone has freed her from the prison of her sin and her guilt. And when she tells the people, in John 4.20, the Bible said, Then they went out of the city and they came to him. This undeserving disciple, this undesirable woman has now got everybody to come to church. You know, that street meeting. The well at Sychar in the middle of the day. Now, another side note. You know, he that winneth souls is wise. and That may have a broader context than what we normally think. But you don't have to be wise to be a witness. You just tell what you saw and what you heard. Amen. She doesn't have a lot of character at this point in her life. She does have a story. And sometimes the people that bring the most people to church aren't those of us who have been around our entire life. But are people who are just coming to God and they go back to their friends and their family members and their co-workers and they say, let me tell you what happened in Atlanta West last week. And when you see them sitting on the road with her, who's unproven, untested, hasn't even been to welcome to the family, don't criticize her. She may not be a good disciple, but she's a good witness. Amen. And we should always encourage that. Amen? Amen. Then they went out of the city, verse 30, to, and they came unto him. They believed on him, verse 39, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all that ever I did. They asked Jesus to stick around a couple days, and as much as he needed to be on the move, he was more an evangelist and a pastor, an apostle to start things, new things. He stayed in that ungodly little dinky town two more days. And then, verse 21, 41, verse 41. And many more believed because of his own words and said unto the woman, telling this woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves. And know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. She was kind of a mile marker pointing them toward the safe haven, right? Toward Jesus Christ. But now they had their own experience with Him and they believed Him for themselves. And then is an amazing thing. And I don't have this queued up for the screens. But the Bible said in First John, excuse me, First uh, John 4.14, He's the Savior of the world. But these Samaritans, they say this, that he is the Savior of the world. Not the Savior of the Jews. He's the Savior of the world. And this title of Jesus Christ is an understanding 
that he wasn't just a Jewish Messiah to come to his very own people, but he came for everybody, everywhere, the worst sinner, every pagan. It's amazing that they call him the Savior of the world. How did this happen? See, Jesus knows everything about everyone. The Bible said he didn't commit himself to any man for he knew what was in man. He read their very thoughts. He's omniscient. He's God in flesh. He knows everything. There's not a secret in this story to Jesus. But there's a sinner in this story. And he serves as this witness to her. And she becomes a connector to an entire city of people. Amen. John 4, 4. And he must, needs, go through Samaria. And the disciples come back. They do not understand what's going on. That's when Jesus tells them, I don't want you to say, yet four months and then comes harvest. But lift up your eyes. And look on the fields, plural. They're white already to harvest. He wants these disciples to quit having a preconceived idea about the coming revival that in their mind was mostly a Jewish revival. Lift up your eyes, guys, and look in the city of Samaria. One commentator I read years ago said maybe it was the men in their, in their white attire, their robes, coming out of Samaria. And Jesus says, look, here is this harvest, this unexpected harvest coming from an unexpected place. Don't live by your preconceived ideas, but look at what God is doing and believe it and experience. If you don't mind, please stand. Praise God. I thank the Lord for the story in the Bible and this undeserving disciple. And if we were all really honest, we would say that that was us. But if someone was going to put us in a lineup and we're, somebody was going to pick out the person that might really make it, that was a candidate for salvation, we might not have been the one that was picked. Amen. So we want to be careful that we don't exercise faulty judgment because if you look at this story, you would think that this woman was not hungry for God. She was too far gone. Her life was too complicated. There's no way she was going to make it. If she walked in the back door of the church, the roof would cave in. People say terrible things like that, judgmental things. And then maybe there's this faulty conclusion that nobody would listen to her. But guess what they did, right? Because she just told what Jesus Christ had done for her. Amen. Someone said about this story that maybe this woman at the well finally met a man who looked at her as a soul. I think you understand what I'm saying. Because a lot of men have looked at her for other motives. But Jesus Christ looked at her as a lost soul.
as undeserving as she was, as undesirable as she was. And of all the people that had judged her in her life, she finally met one man who was holy enough to really judge her. And he did it. He forgave her. So I pray that we would never, the whole purpose of this message tonight is to help our thinking that we would never look at anyone as an undesirable disciple that God could not save.